It is spring break week, which means Amy and I are spending time with our families. Please enjoy this week's free broadcast, and don't forget that it is Forward Radio's birthday celebration pledge drive through April 9th. Help keep community radio and a wide variety of viewpoints on the air. Go to forwardradio.org and make your donation there. Books and reading, at their very best, are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. Our guest this week, Tori Murden McClure, is a Renaissance woman. She has a law degree, a Master of Divinity degree from Harvard, as well as a Master of Fine Arts from Spalding University, the institution where she currently serves as president. She was the first woman and first American to ski 750 miles to the geographic South Pole. She worked as an assistant to Muhammad Ali at the Ali Center and has served as a chaplain in Boston-area hospitals. But what she's most known for is her solo journey to successfully row a boat across the Atlantic Ocean in 1999. Ten years later, she published her memoir about that experience, A Pearl in the Storm, How I Found My Heart in the Middle of the Atlantic Ocean. Now, a little over ten years after publication, her book and story have a new life. A musical about her experience has been created, and her boat is part of the Fraser Museum's Cool Kentucky exhibit. The book, which we discussed with Tori in this week's episode, has a lot to do with 2020 in a roundabout way because it is about her battle with feelings of helplessness stemming from her childhood. And who in this world hasn't been experiencing feelings of helplessness during this global pandemic? We can all relate to wanting to do something but not being able to. Tori talks to us about why memoir is in its own way just another type of fiction, what completely different pieces of advice she received from her writing mentors during her MFA program that shaped her book, how her desire to write a book about a hero's journey as a woman can be tricky and hasn't been done often, and the crazy reason why we didn't see her memoir as an Oprah book club selection. Our guest today is Tori Murden McClure, and if you have lived in Louisville for any amount of time. You have seen her face and heard her name. She is the president of Spalding University here in Louisville, and she's also the author of A Pearl in the Storm. And we're going to be talking to her about that book, which even though it's been around for a while, it it seems to keep getting second and third lives a little bit. So Tori, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's my privilege. Thanks for having me. So I am so excited to talk to you. I read your book several years ago, and it made quite an impression on me at the time. You have done lots of interesting things, which makes the question that we normally ask our guests, tell us a little about yourself, maybe a little complicated. (laughs) It would probably take (laughs) up most of this broadcast. So much of your life is chronicled in your memoir, Pearl in the Storm, which was published in 2009. If you had to summarize your life since the publication of that book, what would you say? Well, since the publication of A Pearl in the Storm, I've pretty much been the president of Spalding University. So that's been the vast majority of my life. 
Now, for some of that time, I was also the chair of the board of trustees for the National Outdoor Leadership School. So they would get me out into the wilderness and and take care of my itchy feet syndrome where I have to leave civilization from time to time or I get grumpy. But really for the last five or six years, I've just been the president of Spalding. And that's been a a pretty all-consuming job. With that being the case that, you know, you're busy promoting Spalding. And and I know I went to high school at Presentation Academy, which is right next door to Spalding. And we used to eat lunch in the Spalding cafeteria. So it has changed a lot since, yes. since I was in high school. So you've been very busy with that growth and development. So tell us a little bit about, about your reading life. We always like to ask our guests about their reading life. So what books were you drawn to as a kid? Did you have any favorites that you read over and over again? And then what's your reading life like as an adult? Oh, I was a very strange child. I loved history, and I had a major crush on John Quincy Adams. (laughs) Everyone else was in love with, you know, movie stars and singers, and I was in love with John Quincy Adams. And, um, you know, that's, uh, yeah, I was a strange child. read mostly (laughs) history and Shakespeare and things like that and the classics. And was really crushed one afternoon when I was reading Thomas Jefferson, and he suggested that everyone had to read fiction. And I was horrified because I just, I didn't have any fiction. I really didn't see the point in fiction. And and then, of course, I had to branch out and start reading fiction, which is still not the, the bulk of my reading. I'm, I tend to be a nonfiction kind of woman, although all nonfiction is also fiction. Jill Kirk Conway uh, wrote a book on, uh, basically on autobiographies. And she just refers to them as fiction. And I remember sort of thinking, no, no, they're about real people. They're not fictional at all. But when you try to condense a life, you make choices. And as I was writing my own book, A Pearl in the Storm, I remember really thinking about that and wrestling with that. I could tell a thousand stories about myself that are true, that would make you think I'm a goddess. There are a thousand stories I could tell you about myself that are true that would make you not want to have lunch with me. (laughs) Authenticity is somewhere in the middle. And I really wrestled with and tried to find that sort of authentic me that has feet of clay that bumps into things. You know, one of those brilliant minds that lacks social skills. So books were always safe because they didn't require me to have social skills. And they never beat me up or shoved me into a locker or anything like that. So um, books were books were great friends. I have recently listened to some psychology podcasts, and there's something that I've heard, and I don't know a whole lot about it, but we think that our memories are like there's this one memory, and that's the way it is, and it, and that's true. But there's something that I've heard about how every time we retrieve a memory that it changes the memory, just the act of retrieving it yeah, changes the memory. So to some extent, it sounds like if that is the case, then what does that mean if what you've experienced changes, you know, does that make it not true or more true? It's, it, that's an interesting idea. I could go, yeah. I could really go down a rabbit hole on that one. When I was rowing across the ocean, it took me two tries um, to successfully take a rowboat alone across the Atlantic Ocean. In the first try, I was hit by a hurricane, Hurricane Danielle. 
And after that storm passed, I shot two different videos where I told the story about the hurricane. Now I'm alone in a rowboat. There's not an audience. There's no one I'm telling the story to, but I told two different versions Hmm. of that storm. Now they're not dramatically different, but they're little details that are different in each of those versions. And in one version, in the middle of the storm, I got out of the cabin and intended to set up my distress beacon. And I'd been out of the cabin twice. In the first version, I pretended that I never left the cabin because that would be stupid, right? You're in the middle of a hurricane. Leaving the cabin is stupid. (laughs) And, you know, I don't mind if you think I'm crazy. I don't want you to think I'm stupid. And in the second version, I'm still playing along, pretending like I never left the cabin. And it's like, you know, and I've lost the lights on the the roof of the cabin. I mean, I I put a light out there in the middle of the storm and uh, now it's gone. And of course, how did the light get on the roof of the cabin if I wasn't out of the cabin? But that sense of not even consciously painting a tale. Uh, I remember as I was leaving to row across the ocean, I was keeping a very detailed journal. And it it, it was too much, right? It was, I, Tori Merton, am rowing under the great dome of the sky, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And I got about 40 days out and I reread it. And I thought, what's the difference between polish and varnish? Yeah. And I threw it overboard. And one of my best friends at the time was Barry Bingham Jr., who was the editor of the Courier Journal. And he was horrified that I threw my journal overboard. I'm like, yeah, it was just wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So your memoir is primarily about you crossing the Atlantic on a rowboat from Cape Hatteras, North Carolina to France by yourself and this 23 foot long boat. But you also in that memoir talk about your childhood, your education, your personal relationships. Did you always intend to write a memoir or did the idea occur to you at some point after you've done all these cool things that most people don't ever do? Yeah. You know, I thought about it. There were kind of two pivotal elements in that. Uh, Barry Bingham Jr. was my pen pal and he was very keen that I write a book. And shortly after the row, I uh, had a an event in Dijon, France, where my husband and I got to spend a few days with Thor Heyerdahl. And Thor Heyerdahl asked me if I planned to write a book about my explorations. And I I admitted that I had thought about it. And he said, be sure to leave room enough to grow. And it was so clear to me that he was in his 80s. Every person who went to talk to Thor Heyerdahl wanted to talk about his book, Kantiki. He had done dozens of other things but they only wanted to talk about Kantiki. And it was his way of saying, you know, be sure to leave room enough to grow. And I asked him, you know, what's it like having your life defined by a balsa raft? And he smiled and he said, if you didn't want to be known as the woman who rode the boat, you shouldn't have rowed the boat. <laughs> Make sure I have my, my dates right. So you rode in it was the late nineties. Is that right? Like 98, 99. Correct. My unsuccessful attempt was in 1998 and my successful attempt was 1999. Okay. But then the memoir didn't come out until 2009. So was that intentional that you were kind of leaving room and and then tell us about that whole process of writing. Did you sit down and do that full time or? Yeah, I never worked on it full time. I always had, you know, day jobs had to eat. But the the first issue was you, I had to let the the sense of accomplishment pass. 
because I, there's nothing more boring than a, a book by someone who wants to tell you how great they are. <laughs> and those are just tedious books that should not be, they just shouldn't be written. So there was a little bit of letting the, the sense of accomplishment go by. And then there was the period where I kept writing a bad book over and over and over again. And I ended up in a Master's of Fine Arts in Writing program at, at Spalding University. I was uh, a trustee there. Never really thought about Spalding as an excellent school. It's a, you know often referred to as a hidden gem downtown. And, and I thought, well, I'll just get in this program to get a kick in the seat of the pants to actually get this book finished. And it was life-altering, brain-altering. Uh, it was such a magnificent program with phenomenal faculty from all over the world and just really absolutely kicked me in the seat of the pants and kind of broke down walls in my mind that I didn't realize were there and found whole continents of unexplored wealth. And it was such a great experience, but you know, you work with a faculty member kind of one-on-one each semester. And so the most important decision you make each semester is, you know, which faculty member are you going to, with whom are you going to work? And Sina Naslin, who ran the program in those days, has this habit of sort of appearing next to one, like Merlin. She just pops out (laughs) of nowhere. And she goes, with whom would you like to work as your first mentor? And I I named all the manly men in the program, Bob Finch or Roy Hoffman or blah, blah, blah. And she goes, Molly Peacock. I think Molly Peacock would be a good mentor for you. And Molly Peacock is a Canadian poet, very flamboyant, lots of scarves, lots of color. And she fits her name, right? Molly Peacock. And the only thing she said in my first residency that stuck was luxury. I love luxury. And I thought... Rowboat. The plumbing system aboard the American Pearl was bucket and chuck it. Not exactly luxury. She says, what are you working on? I said, I'm working on a memoir about taking a rowboat alone across the ocean. She's like, uh, what? And so I send her my first 50 pages of wind and wave and nuts and bolts and solar panels and epoxy. And then my next 50 pages of wind and wave and nuts and bolts and solar panels. And she, she writes, she goes, okay, Now, I understand all this stuff about the wood and the glue and the parts that stick them all together, but were you on this boat? I said, Molly, you can't spend two and a half months alone in a rowboat if you're not an introvert. I'm really not there very interesting. She goes, and do you think the nuts and the bolts are interesting? (laughs) And so she insisted I put myself in the boat. So, you know, you can imagine how great the book was when it was just a rowboat rowing itself alone across the the ocean. (laughs) And my second mentor was a woman named Elaine Orr, Orr, Orr's, you know, marriage made in heaven, obviously. She said, what are you working on? I said, I'm working on a memoir about taking a rowboat alone across the ocean. She goes, you mean sailboat? I said, no, actually, I mean rowboat. She's like, whatever. So (laughs) first 50 pages, wind, wave, nuts and bolts, a little bit about me. Next 50 pages, she writes back, she goes, let me get this straight. You actually took a rowboat alone across the Atlantic Ocean? What twisted you? What messed you up? What pushed you over the edge? So she was the mentor that sort of asked me to open a vein and hemorrhage on the page. <laughs> My third mentor was a guy named Robert Finch, who had edited the Norton Anthology of Nature Writing. And, he, you know, he didn't care about me. He didn't care about where I came from. He didn't care about what messed me up. He wanted to know about the wildlife. Tell me about the wildlife. <laughs> And my fourth mentor was Charles Gaines, who wrote the book Pumping Iron and worked with Arnold Schwarzenegger. And he said, what are you working on? I said, I'm working on a 
a story about taking a rowboat alone across the Atlantic Ocean. He says, cool. Send him all my pages. He reads them. He goes, kid, let me tell you a secret. This is called an adventure story. No one wants depth in an adventure story. <laughs> just want the swashbuckling tale of daring do. Add a little more swash and a little more buckle and it'll be perfect. So now I have a thousand pages of manuscript. And my goal was to write a book that would be accessible to high school kids. And, you know, if it's more than 250 pages, you're toast. So my final mentor was a mentor named Roy Hoffman. He really was just like, tell me a story. And anything that moved the story forward stayed in and anything that didn't move the story forward had to get cut. And it was such a good experience for me in in the process of writing that book. But it took eight years and all, uh, lots of years in between where I didn't touch it. I love well, that all you got something different from all those different people and all those different elements are definitely in your book. I mean, yeah. And it was like I, I visited yeah. different points of the compass with each, with each one of them. Yeah. yeah. To me, this is fascinating because I teach middle and high schoolers writing, but f- for them, I think sometimes, you know, they don't fully appreciate the benefit that can come from having different eyes look at your work and that it is it's very subjective. You know, what one person takes from something that you write is going to be completely different. They may agree on maybe some commas and some periods and stuff like that, but in terms of what they need and what they want from the writing is going to be very different. When you were writing that, you said that at first it was just the nuts, the bolts, the glue. I mean, you said yourself, it was, it was bad. How did you know that? Well, I, I had, an agent for my book. And I kept sending her her drafts. And she said, you know, she said something that stuck with me. She goes, Tori, you're writing this book as a man would write it. What's interesting is you're not a man. (laughs) And you need to figure out, you know, you need to write it as a woman would write it. And I'm like, what does it mean to write like a woman? Is that like running like a girl? How do you how do you write (laughs) like a woman? And I had in mind that I was going to write the hero's journey from a woman's perspective. Now, the hero's journey is not a woman's story. There are thousands of very tens of thousands of variations of the hero's journey, but they're almost always male, almost always white, usually have money or are on their way to getting some. And the women and the minorities are supporting characters. But I was going to write the hero's journey. So here I was writing the hero's journey, writing the hero's journey. And then the eve of the the book is about to be published. I'm like, Oh my God, I sold out because the book is Hero's Journey, Hero's Journey, Hero's Journey, Love Story. (laughs) (laughs) And women, they write about relationships. They write about caretaking. Men write about their exploits. And so the first three quarters of the book are I'm rowing a boat across the ocean. The end of the book, I'm get married to Mac McClure. Actually, I don't think I marry him in the book, but you can tell I'm on my way to marrying Mac McClure. (laughs) And I thought, oh my goodness, I sold out. I gave into peer pressure. And then I watched the videos of me literally getting out of the boat, stepping into Mac's arms. And it feel, feels as if I've been there ever since. So I'm pretty, I'm pretty lucky. Yeah. Well, and from my perspective, I looked at it like that journey was you having a relationship with yourself. You know, I mean, to me, from my eyes, it was all about relationships. It was just the bulk of it was you with you. And right. that's a pretty and, important relationship. Yeah, the book took a major turn when I began to add the people who stood at the forks in the road of my life. 
the mentors, the coaches, the teachers, the people who really said, you know, go left, not right, or go right, not left. And at least one appears in each chapter. And that really transformed the book from bad and boring to a book that I, I hope is worth reading. Well, it's very obvious. I mean, I, I saw you speak at the Women Who Write conference several years ago, and I thought your memoir was was really funny. It's not like reading the memoir of a stand-up comedian, but it appealed to me humor-wise. And so I'm wondering, was that something that you had to work to add, or was that one of the easier parts of writing? And did you have to change your humor at any point yeah, as part of the editing? No. Uh, in the opening uh, pages, I asked my uncle, should I write my story as a comedy, a history, a tragedy, or a romance? And he says a romance. And I thought, oh, I'm in big trouble because I had no experience with romance. I was 35. When I talk to teenagers, I just say, loser. And, you know, <laughs> history I could write because I loved history. So the history wanders into the book here and there. There's no challenge in writing a tragedy. Anyone over the age of 30 can write his or her life as a tear-soaked model. And I think that's true. There's nothing special about my my tragedies. Comedy is just comes to me. It, my life is hysterically funny. It remains hysterically funny. You know, I get away with all kinds of stuff as a university president that other presidents can't get away with because, you know, I took a rowboat across the ocean. What are you going to do? <laughs> um, and for about eight weeks this year, I chaired the board of the NCAA in the height of COVID and just could get away with being a real smart aleck. And at one point I was being snarky and, and this NCAA staffer was taking me seriously. I'm like, I was being snarky. You don't have to pay attention to my snark. And so the humor is just who I am, and it wasn't conscious or thoughtful, doesn't appeal to everyone. I tend to be way too intellectual in my humor, so uh, often it's lost on folks who don't understand the references. So with that being said, I personally loved a lot of those literary and historical references. So you, you mentioned Eleanor of Aquitaine, who's one of my personal heroes and an Edgar Allan Poe poem, a quote from Macbeth, a quote from Franklin Delano Roosevelt. So you definitely come across as a, as a very cerebral person, but you're also an elite athlete. And that intellectualism may not match the stereotypes that people have as to, you know, athletes. So were you concerned that your philosophical tendencies were going to be too wide a gap for Anybody who picked up your book expecting the stereotypical athlete adventure memoir? Oh, yeah. If, if someone's expecting the swashbuckling tale of Daring Do, they're going to be very disappointed. <laughs> yeah, and the book isn't for everyone. Um, it, and I do think it is perfect for the average high school student. And, and I, now when it does get assigned to high school students, I feel guilty because I, I can't remember a book I liked reading in high school because I was being forced <laughs> to read it. I'm like, oh about this. But I really enjoy meeting different people through their writing and books that I feel like you should visit at least once a decade because as we change our view of uh, a book will change. Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning is really appropriate for the world of COVID-19. During the social unrest, I revisited Uh, Notes of a Native Son by uh, James Baldwin. And, you know, when he writes about 
he's writing about the death of his father and he, and he talks about the weight of white people. And then you see the murder of George Floyd and you're like, that's the weight of white people. Anne Marl Lindbergh's Gift from the Sea seems like a, such a simple kind of beach book, but it's not. Um, Shakespeare, I think you have to read once a decade because it, mm-hmm. it shifts and moves and bobs and weaves and changes as you, as you age. Emerson's essays could get you through any crisis. I didn't read the Iliad and the Odyssey until late. It was after grad school. I did have Dante on on the boat with me. I had lots of classics on the boat with me, but mostly by dead white men and uh, got picked on for that. You said you thought that this would be geared towards high schools. Why was that important to you? Why was that your audience that that you want it to maybe appeal to? Yeah, one of the passages in the book that I really wrestled with and had to decide whether I was going to tell that part of the story or not, there's this moment in the middle of the hurricane, Danielle, when I'm really contemplating suicide. The storm has gone on for so long. I am so badly beaten. I'm so tired. It's clear I'm going to die. Let's just get it over with and do it fast. And so I'm on deck kind of playing Russian roulette by clipping and unclipping my safety tether. And a wave hits and I'm holding the clip open, but the safety cable pulls it out of my hand. And and I live to tell the story, but did I want high school kids to know I had come that close? And the answer is yes, that, that young people need to know that we all have moments of doubt. We all have moments of despair. And that you can weather them, you can move through them. And the first word out of my mouth when that boat finally surfaced was coward. And it was a sense of I was taking the easy way out, that life had more for me, both good and bad, and that that wasn't how I was supposed to go out. Yeah. Now I'm I'm rethinking my whole f- curriculum for next year. I'm like, oh, I think I might have another book to add to the, <laughs> to what I have my students do. Before we started recording, you were telling us that this book really had sort of a hard time making it into the world from the publishing side. Yeah, and so yeah. I wondered if you'd tell us that story. The book started at Random House, and then my editor left Random House and went to HarperCollins and managed to take the book with her, which I'm told never, ever happens, but it did. And uh, it was supposed to be the lead book for the Collins imprint of HarperCollins in the spring of 2009. And of course, after the market crash in 2008, the publishing world was imploding at that point, and Rupert Murdoch closed the Collins imprint. Now, the Collins imprint published the King James Bible. I thought I'd be safe with a Collins imprint. But, you know, and so I don't know, the book went out the basement window somewhere in HarperCollins and with no backing at all. And then Oprah's team picked it up, wanted to make it a summer read, but Harper's Collins didn't have any books and wouldn't send them any books. And so it got a mention in Oprah Magazine, but there weren't any books to be purchased, so it died again. And then some clever person categorized what is autobiography as a nautical book. And in places like Kentucky, nautical books get shelved in transportation. So it was shelved next to planes, trains, and automobiles. And then, of course... Recently, uh, two brilliant folks have written a musical based on the book, and the musical is titled Row. And the musical was supposed to have its world premiere this summer. 
and it got taken out by a worldwide pandemic. So I don't think you want to have anything to do with me or my story because bad things happen. <laughs> I can't even imagine what it would have been like to know that you could, your book could have been Oprah's book club pick for one of the summer months and it didn't happen because your publisher wouldn't do it. Ah! Well, they just didn't, they just wouldn't give them the books because I don't think they had the books. It was just one of those like, yeah, like we, like that, that imprint's closed. We don't, which book was that? Yeah. Oh my gosh. So it's been 20 years since that expedition across the Atlantic, 10 years since you wrote the book. Do you see your adventure differently now when you think back on it after 10 years and then 20 years? Yeah, I really don't. What I've been thrilled by, I mean, there's always a, a, a massive silver lining, right? You know, if the book had been a huge success commercially, I doubt anyone would have picked it up and said, hey, I'll write a musical about this. And even the the musical, which is brilliant, and I have nothing to do with it, so I can say it's brilliant, not getting to have its world premiere this summer, um, the Williamstown Theater Festival has commissioned it to be put on audible.com. Now the book never did well enough to get recorded, but having the musical put on audible.com, it's the first musical to ever premiere in that format because no one was working. They got an incredibly good cast to perform it. And I'm super excited. So the silver linings are, it'll be accessible to millions instead of a couple of hundred people in Williamstown, Massachusetts. And it'll have a incredible cast of folks who were unemployed at that particular moment in time. I guess the, the story of the book is as, as I put those different teachers and mentors in, they were usually people who picked me up off the floor. And when you get knocked down, there's always a silver lining or there's always a magical, compassionate human being ready to pick you up. Now, sometimes you have to look for them and you have to be willing to accept the hand that's reaching down to pick you up. But that was the story I wanted to tell was this scrappy young kid who grew up with a brother who's developmentally disabled, who was always, you know, trying to protect him from bad things and never quite successful in doing that. And the various mentors and friends who steered me, steered me right. Um, without them, I'd probably be in jail. So do you feel like as you've gotten older, you know, because the memoir itself is this emotional and intellectual journey uh, that that's about, I think, a lot of things that fighting helplessness and, and being driven. Do you feel like you've mellowed over the years since you published it? I wouldn't say I've mellowed. I, I'd say I'm the same person who wrote the book. I think what is different is, you know, I had no experience with romance because I had studied love in books. <laughs> and love never quite works out well in books. Like, read them. I mean, there is not one successful marriage in all of Shakespeare, not one. Plato writes about, oh yeah, it was Plato's quoting Socrates and says, oh, of course, by all means, uh, marry. If you get a good wife, you'll be happy. If you get a bad wife, you'll be a philosopher. I think it was Plato or Aristotle described uh, love as a mental illness. And so I'm like, okay, love dampens your ambition. It slows you down. It, it messes you up. And that's all true. I would say what has changed is I have gone through that phase of life where I got to live happily ever after. I don't know that it'll last my whole life, but love does dampen your ambition. Love does slow you down. And those are good things. 
Are there any goals that you still want to achieve? You're an extremely driven person. And I mean, you, you have all kinds of degrees after your name, but is there something that you, you're still wanting to, to do that you haven't done yet? I think there are quite a few adventures yet to have. I am enjoying at the present moment being happily married to Mac McClure. And Mac's uh, about 20 years older than I am. So I expect there'll be another chapter. COVID has given me really itchy feet. I've got to get out in the wilderness. I've got to go do something. And it won't be dangerous enough to get me killed, although it probably will be dangerous to get me killed, but it won't be like, all right, no one's ever done this before uh, kind Mm. of danger. But there's still adventures yet for me to have. Although, you know, doing something isolated out in the wilderness is probably the safest bet. You know, right now, even, yeah. <laughs> right now, that's, that's just, the way to go. It's just how to get there. Yeah. Right. Right. So your bow, the American Pearl, is now part of the Cool Kentucky exhibit at the Fraser History Museum. So tell us a little bit about how that came about. Yeah, if it weren't for the, the musical and me feeling badly for the folks who've worked so hard on it, I would have never given permission to move the American Pearl from, was it Spalding, uh, right across the parking lot from my office, to the Fraser History Museum. And Rachel Platt asked, and uh, Rachel was there in Guadalupe when I landed. So I have a soft spot for Rachel Platt and asked if I'd loan the American Pearl. And I said, well, I'll build you another boat that looks just like the American Pearl. And one thing led to another and COVID happened. And I was like, okay, I'll loan you the American Pearl because more people will get to see it at the Fraser, and maybe not physically, but virtually than would ever have seen it at Spalding. And I'm not egotistical enough to shoot a lot of video of the boat and put it out in the world. And the Fraser just does that as a matter of course. So, and I wanted to do whatever I could to step out from under my rock uh, to make it possible for the musical to, to succeed. Cause they've really, what, what they've done is they've pulled the universal themes out of the book and uh, put it on stage. Now there's an album by Don Landis Yes. Called Row. Is that the same music that's in the the stage adaptation? Would yes. Playwright um, Right. And it is the same. So uh, Don Landis has released a CD titled Row, and it's the music from the musical. And it, But it's different from the audible.com edition is going to be the full musical with the full script. And so you can kind of follow the story on Dawn's CD, particularly if you read the lovely notes she put in the package. But I'm excited because I've only really heard variations of the script, the full script. And I know it's changed quite a lot. So has this play ever been performed before? For some reason, I was thinking that it had been performed in New York City, but... It had it had a number of readings in New York City, but it's not had a full production and was slated to have a full production last August, which, of course, was canceled by COVID. Do you know when that's going to be available, the Audible, or is it now? No, it'll be available sometime in the spring. They just finished recording a couple weeks ago, maybe one week ago. Yeah. So when they were writing the, the play, did you know that they were doing it or did they just, you know, one day contact you and say, hey, we we wrote this musical play about your book. Oh, yeah. It was even stranger than that. They came to my office and said, hey, what would it take to get the rights to your book? We'd like to write a musical. 
And my first response, I don't know if it came out of my mouth, but my first response was, no, no. Like, what does an introvert want to do with a musical? Nothing. I want nothing to do with a musical. <laughs> like, last thing you want is a musical about you. That's a bad idea. No. And then Dawn Landis Land literally pulls out her guitar in my office and sings two songs that were smart and on target and authentic to me. And... I did the math in my head. Okay, the odds of a musical going anywhere are zero to 1%. So I thought, I'm never going to see these people again. Don't crush their dreams. Yes, you have my permission. You may use my book for a musical. They were like, no, no, seriously. What would it take to get the rights to your book? I'm like, oh, that's right. I'm a lawyer. Here, I wrote it down. You have my permission. <laughs> I slide the paper across the table. They look at each other and they go back to New York. And they sent me a box of cookies as a thank you. So, of course, my husband is telling everyone I sold the rights to my book for a box of cookies. <laughs> and I pretty much held to that because they've offered to write me in at various times. And I'm like, no, no, you've done all the work. I hope you have wild success with this, but I, you know, I don't deserve any piece of this action. And so far, there hasn't been any action, so there's no need for jealousy. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So do you think you have another book in you at some point? I mean, is that something that that you think you would do again, write more or no? Yes, I would love to write another book. I just can't imagine writing another book while I'm a university president. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's just not going to happen. Does the book's ability to inspire other people surprise you? You know, there have been these magical moments like I, I, I typically my workout when I'm not rowing on the river is roller skiing in Cherokee Park. And one morning I was just slogging around the Cherokee Loop. And there was this young, probably in his late teens, kind of bounding like a young gazelle up and down the hills. And he was going in the opposite direction I was. And we passed each other three times. And as we got to the top of what Louisville thinks of as Dog Hill, he was coming up one side of the hill. I was coming up the other side of the hill. I'm... <gasps> And then the sun's just coming up and this boing, boing, boing young man comes and he goes, and as he passes, he said, I loved your book. And I'm like, okay, does it get any better than that? Really? Aww. Yeah. Well, it has been so fun hearing your stories, but I, I rarely use this term, but I feel a little bit fangirling, just like <laughs> laughing over here, like, oh, she's so cool. <laughs> so thank you for sharing those stories with us. We're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about what we're reading. We are back with Tori Merton McClure and with Carrie. And Carrie, what have you been reading? So I recently finished an audiobook. I have been trying to pay more attention to how long they are so that I don't get another like 80 hour uh, Dan Simmons book. So the book that I picked, the, the cover just looked kind of cool. And that's why I picked it. And it was short. And that's kind of how I pick my wine too, just based on how the bottle looks. But <laughs> it's called Small Spaces by Catherine Arden. And it's a middle grade book. And I thought it was pretty awesome. It was super creepy. It's about a girl. She's in the sixth grade. And her mother has died. And she comes upon, it's accidental. She comes upon a woman at a creek. And 
the woman has a book in front of her and the woman's upset and she's crying and she's trying to throw this book in the creek so it'll kind of wash, you know, wash away from her. And the protagonist basically, you know, she doesn't understand. I mean, who does? Why, why would you want to throw a book in a creek? That's strange. You know, it's a perfectly good book. And so the protagonist basically gets the book away from the woman and swipes it. And the book is called Small Spaces. So she starts reading it and it's about this family, a, a, a mother and, and two sons, and about what happens, this strange deal that one of the brothers makes with this smiling man out in the woods. And so it, it's kind of this mystery, but it's also like a ghost story, which is totally not really something that you know, most people would be reading this time of year, but I, I thought it was really good. I mean, it kept me interested and it really like gave me the willies when I was reading it. So I highly recommend it. You know, if you're looking for a, a quick read that kind of ticks off those boxes, mystery, ghost story, this is the one to get. So yeah, you texted me and told me how creeped out you were. So. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, like I'm a lightweight creepster person it doesn't take a whole lot and it doesn't take too much creepiness to creep me out but I I thought it was really good so that that's what I have recently finished Tori how about you what have you had going on so um probably the most recent book I've got two sitting right in front of me uh Ibram Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist is the most recent book I've read for me it's really about how to how to lead an academic institution in the time of social unrest and diversity at Spalding has always been a really important touchstone. Yeah. Probably since the 1950s when the day laws in Kentucky were overturned prior to that, it was illegal to educate white Americans and black Americans in the same classroom, which is a shameful period in Kentucky history, but um, happily it uh, changed and Berea and Spalding integrated on the same day. And about a third of our students have always been from underrepresented minorities since that time. And we pretty much still have about a third of our students are from underrepresented minorities. And that's not international students. Lots of lots of schools, including like the elite ones, like to point out, oh, well, we have blah, blah, blah. But they're mostly international students. They're not local students. And so it's been a challenging year, not just because of COVID, but because of all the uncertainty in the world right now knowing how to lead uh, in COVID has been a challenge, but leading through the social unrest requires us to all stretch and, and learn. The other book is uh, uh, Fiona Maddox's book on Hildegard of Bingen. And that's an obscure subject, but the woman who played Tori in the musical Row has her own musical based on Hildegard. And so I was refreshing my memories of Hildegard. Um, and I got some other books on Hildegard in my house somewhere, but I haven't been able to find them, which means I have a lot of books. If you're someone like me, can you maybe refresh us on who Hildegard is? Hildegard was a contemporary of uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine, and uh, Hildegard at least wrote to Eleanor. I'm not sure Eleanor wrote back, but she was a 12th century mystic, I guess you would call her. Okay. And she was... You know, if you wanted autonomy in the 12th century and you were born female, you, you married Christ. You became a nun. <laughs> you know, Jesus really didn't tell you what to do. Yeah. Well, Amy, what have you been reading? 
So I just finished a book called Leonard and Hungry Paul by Ronan Hessian. I think I said his name right. This was a new release this year, came out in August. And that writer, he, he's Irish, and this is his debut novel. And I think that it was first published in Ireland under a small independent press, but then got picked up by uh, a larger publisher here in the United States. So this is this book's a little hard for me to categorize but it's a novel and it's a story of two very quirky men in their mid thirties who are both quiet and kind. And they have been best friends since childhood. Leonard lived with his mother until she passed away recently. And he writes encyclopedia entries and he, he hangs out, he goes over to his friend's house, hungry Paul, and they play board games with his mom and dad. Hungry Paul still lives with his parents and he is an occasional postman in their small town. And he fills in when others take vacations, things like that. So neither of these men are in any romantic relationships. They both had close relationships with their parents. And they live lives that are just very introverted. And they're okay with that. And Hungry Paul's parents are okay with that. He keeps them company in their older age. But you do get the sense that maybe Hungry Paul is on the autism spectrum. He doesn't always understand social cues. He has trouble making conversation with people. And Leonard is similar, but I would say he's probably a little less so. But basically this book is about these two men and their journey to find their place in a busy world when they are introverted and gentle. Can they make a difference or are they too meek to be of any consequence in the world? So I really enjoyed this book. It has an understated humor. Leonard and Hungry Paul are both such unique personalities. They're quirky and they're funny and they're completely lovable. And you're rooting for them at the same time that sometimes you just want to smack your head with this exasperation at them. And I think one of the reasons I was drawn to this book is because I have several people in my life who remind me of these two guys. Um, they're wonderful people, but there's a lot of folks who would think that they don't really fit in with modern life and that they aren't contributing anything but they are just in their own special ways. It reminded me a little of a book called Eleanor Oliphant, It's Completely Fine by Gail Honeyman, except for that there's a lot more conflict in that book than there is in this one. There's another book called The Rosie Project by Graham Simpson that reminded me a little bit of that too. It's not an action-packed book by any means, but it is an exploration of familial relationships and friendships. There's a little smatter of romance in there, and it's generally just a feel-good book which very gently asks you to think about what being normal really means. Hmm. And I really enjoyed it. So. so where did you hear about that one? I think that I read about it in a list of good books that were from independent presses. That's where hmm. I saw it at first. And then I also saw a book riot article uh, where they had independent booksellers talking about underrated books and it was on that list. Like I said, because I know several people who sort of remind me of these guys. And I, I, I was just drawn to it. I, and I'm it into a, Yeah, I'm into a lot of feel good books right now. And this yeah. one definitely is one of those. Well, it sounds like one I, I'm going to put on my list because I, I started to say something about Eleanor Oliphant. Yeah. Until and then you mentioned it. So right. That one, right. that one's a little more, has more conflict in it than this one does. I mean, you know, with Eleanor Oliphant, you know, she has some, she has demons. sort of a, yeah, she has some demons in her past and things like that. But the quirky personalities and the, and her interactions with her coworkers is somewhat reminiscent of this book as well. So 
All right. Well, I like quirky. So, (laughs) all right. Well, we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're going to ask Tori her top five. We are back with Tori Murden McClure, and we're going to ask her her top five. Question number one. So I am personally convinced that Dolly Parton should achieve sainthood. So I'm curious about the unusual name of your cat. First, tell us your cat's name and whether Dolly inspired it. (laughs) So the cat, we named the cat Jolene, or I named the cat Jolene, because the cat moved into my house. Cat's a stray alley cat moved into my house and took over my husband. And so we named the cat, we named the cat Jolene. And then it turns out Jolene is Joe, but which was really upsetting to me. And I, I can't tell you how troubling this was because I was all into this jealousy shtick. And then we figured (laughs) out that Jolene was Joe and well, we still call Joe Jolene just because it's fun. But the whole gender identity thing, I didn't think would matter with a cat, but apparently it does. Um, Yeah. So there you are. Well, we were going to ask what's the top weirdest or wonderful thing about your kitty, but that might be the answer that Jolene is Joe. Jolene is Joe. (laughs) But Joe, Joe has designs on my husband. Totally. Like, yeah. So was Mac a cat person before? Because in my situation, we had had cats and my husband didn't want to get any more cats, but then cats sort of came into our lives. And now he and one of the cats have this special like love snuggle relationship, but he, he likes cats. So I'm, I'm curious, what is it? Is Mac a cat person? So for the record, I am a dog person. To my core, I am a dog person. Don't like cats, really? No, I don't think so. Now, I married into cats. Now, is Mac a cat person? No, I would say he's a dog person, but he ran Bernheim Forest, and people would dump their cats at Bernheim, so of course he would adopt them. We've been married for 20 years. We've never bought a cat. They just find us. They adopt us from the backyard, and they move in. And so we've always had a cat, and right now we have Jolene. But there we are. And I like the cats that move in with us. I will grant that. (laughs) And they are easier than dogs. So question number two, we've been told that you're an amazing woodworker. So tell us how this hobby developed and what is your top favorite thing you've made for someone else? Uh, well, my favorite thing that I've made for someone else is what I'm working on right this minute. I'm building, uh, desks for the children of friends and, um, they're pretty spectacular. Um, I did uh, in just a few weeks ago, finish a Lutian's garden bench out of mahogany and pine. And before you shudder and, and just shriek with horror because you never, ever, ever combine the fine aspects of mahogany was something as pedestrian as pine. But we took down a back porch from the house, oh, eight years ago. And Mac doesn't throw anything away. So of course, pieces of the back porch were on the wood pile. And I bought a little fire pit to keep my friends warm on Sunday mornings when I still have coffee with my rowing sisters in the backyard, six feet apart, social distance with masks. We have a little fire and I was going to burn that back porch. And so I had to scrape off all the lead paint first. And Mac was like, no, that's good hard pine. You, you can't burn that. And so here I had 50 pieces of little railing. And 
I'm like, I, I'm going to be stuck with these 50 pieces of railing for the rest of my life. I got to do something with it. So I made a bench out of it. It's gorgeous. So the bottom is all the silly pieces of pine that I had to clue up piece by piece to make what amounts to two by fours. And then the top is mahogany and it's just gorgeous. Oh, wow. So do you have like a workshop, like a woodworking workshop at your home? Yeah, I have I have the best man cave in Louisville, Kentucky. Only it belongs <laughs> to a woman. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm going to need to see this bench because it sounds beautiful. Yeah, I can send you a picture. Yeah. Awesome. That'd be great. So question number three, you've connected with so many important people in your life. Uh, you were Muhammad Ali's first employee at the Ali Center, and you have a friendship with former President Jimmy Carter. Have there been any other top relationships or encounters with special people that have meant a lot to you? Yeah, President Carter is every bit as introverted as I am. Uh, it's Rosalind, who's the politician. He's pretty spectacular. And he gave me a, a woodworking book. Um, it's The Craftsmanship of Jimmy Carter by Jimmy Carter. He's has a fair amount of furniture in the book that reminded me of Thomas Moser. Anyway, I ended up reading a Moser book and then realizing I didn't have an appropriate workbench. So I had to build myself a workbench that I think of as the Jimmy Carter workbench. Muhammad Ali was such an integral person in the time of the row across the ocean. Uh, super important to me. The most fascinating person I met briefly who in that sort of 15 minutes of fame moment would have been Candace Bergen. Mm. She was someone who you had the sense she's been there, done that, got over it, and then went out and been there, done that again. And just really, really a special human being. Yeah. We heard you also met the Pope. I did not meet the Pope. I was within, you know, I was invited to give oh, a speech at okay. the Vatican I was the only woman who spoke at the Apostolic Congress on Mercy and only American that spoke at the Apostolic Congress on Mercy and uh, was on the same dais with the Pope, but did not actually get to meet him, which was, um, I was super impressed because I was in the VIP P section. And if you want to meet Pope Francis, that's the worst place to be because he doesn't bother with the VIPs. He goes down and meets the pedestrians. So if I'd been down with the pedestrians, I would have gotten closer. Question number four, you classify yourself as mostly vegetarian. So if you're going to eat something non-plant-based, what is your top meaty splurge? <laughs> so it's um, pretty famous. I have been a vegetarian since I was 14. And a couple times a year, I have bacon. But it mm. has to be burned. It has to <laughs> shatter. It cannot, <laughs> yeah. it cannot approximate meat. If it wiggles, I can't eat it. But if it shatters, it's all mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I tried to go vegetarian for a while and I did miss bacon. Yeah. It's probably the worst meat for you, but I, think yeah. it, I guess it's the salt. I just, yeah, no, I like that stuff. Well, it's a little bit sweet too. It's that little bit sweet, salty. And yeah. I, I like, I'm like you, I like it really crispy. I don't know if it has to shatter necessarily. Yeah. But, but... It has to shatter when you look at it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like bacon too, but I don't fix it very often, not because of it not being good for me. It's just that when I make bacon, then the house smells like bacon and I smell like bacon. And it's like, I like bacon, but I don't need to smell like it for the next, you know, several days. So 
All right. Question number five. We've been told that you are certified as an EMT. Why did you get the certification? And what is one of the top most important things you learned in the training that you think every person should know? Yeah, I stay certified as an EMT and you have to recertify every two years. And every two years, I think, I don't like, I'm old. I don't need to do this anymore. And then something happens in front of me right on campus. And I don't want to be, I'm a lawyer, right? I don't want to be standing on the sideline going, you know, if I still was certified, I could help you, but now I can't. So I stay certified and yeah. And usually it's some, it's stuff that happens on campus that I really want to be involved in. And there was a, a trustee looking for me one afternoon and my assistant at the time said, um, she's in that car wreck right there. And he was like, oh my God, was she, was she in an accident? And she was, yeah, she climbed into it after it happened. <laughs> <laughs> and I was stabilizing one of the drivers at the time. And, oh and uh, of course, I, you know, I'm in my business suit all wrapped up in this wreck of a car. And of course the fire department responds first and, and heard one firefighter say to another firefighter, that's what I call a hands-on president. <laughs> and what you learn in that, that everyone should know is we're all capable of helping. I, I don't believe we turn away from people in pain because we don't care. We turn away from people in pain because we don't know what to do. Even if you don't know what to do, you can be and just go be with somebody in pain. And the, the definition of compassion, the Latin for pati, um, passion is related to the Latin pati, which means suffering. And the prefix com means with, and it's the willingness to suffer with another. And um, just go be with them. That's good advice, especially right now. Well, thank you again. We have had such a good time talking with you and, and hearing about your experiences. And we really appreciate you taking time out of your Monday to speak with us. Sure. My pleasure. Good luck with the editing. If you would like to see Murden's sailless and motorless plywood boat, The Pearl, it is on exhibit at the Fraser Museum in Louisville, Kentucky. This is a permanent exhibit, but several items are on short-term loan. The album Row is a concept album about Tori's journey rowing across the Atlantic written by Don Landis. It can be found on Amazon Music. These songs are part of the musical Row, which will be available via Audible in the spring of 2021. Tori Murden McClure's memoir can be found at your favorite bookstore or library. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.